Richard, Sicily, 
But we're going to jump into our story. We're we're taking another spin in our Hollywood Babylon section. Yay! We're going to talk about William Desmond Taylor, which I I don't really know that much about. I do. He's one of the um, people I read about in the This Is Hollywood book that I got back when I was 10 on the first trip. And it's also one of the cases that made me a death hag. So the person I am now, thanks to, partially thanks to this guy. So you have him to blame. I say mostly blame though. You're right. Uh, We're going to jump into the story. William Cunningham, Dean Taylor, or Tanner, sorry, shit, I can't read tonight. I'll give that name another try. William Cunningham, Dean Tanner, was born into the Anglo-Irish gentry on April 26, 1872, at Evington House, Carlo, County Carlo, Ireland. He's one of my people. Woo! One of five children of a retired British Army officer. Major Thomas Kearns Dean Tanner of the Carlo Rifles, 8th Battalion, King's Royal Rifle Corps. The British love their titles. If, if you're in the Army, they're going to list your rank, what division. They're going to, they're, I've noticed this, the British are heavy on titles. Uh, and his wife, Jane O'Brien. She doesn't have any titles because she didn't serve. Taylor's siblings were Dennis Gage Dean Tanner, Ellen Nell Dean Tanner, Faudel Philip Phillips. Wow. Lizzie Daisy Dean Tanner and Oswald Kearns Dean Tanner. One of his uncles was Charles Kern Dean Tanner, the Irish Parliamentary Party member of Parliament for Mid Cork. Cork. Cork County, okay. My family, the Fentons, is from County Cork. Oh, they probably crossed paths. From 1885 to 1887, Taylor attended Marlborough College in England. In 1891, he left Ireland for a dude ranch in Kansas. Oh, there's a culture shock for you folks. You go from the, the lovely green Emerald Isle to Kansas. I close my eyes only for a moment and the moment's gone dust in the wind. That's for the... (laughs) I just thought of uh, the movie Old School at that point. In 1891... Okay. There, Taylor became reacquainted with acting, his first experiences being at school. And he eventually moved to New York City because that's where all the acting was happening. While in New York, he courted Ethel May Hamilton, an actress who appeared in the stage musical Floridora under the name Ethel May Harrison. All she did was change her last name. Wait, I wonder if she was related to Alexander. Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton's father was a broker and an investor in the English Antiquity Store on Fifth Avenue, the Antique Shop, which eventually employed Taylor. The couple married in an Episcopal ceremony on December 7th, 1901, another day that will live in infamy, at the little church around the corner, and had a daughter, Ethel Daisy, we're not sure, 1902-1903, somewhere in there, we don't know. Taylor and his family were well-known in New York society and were members of several clubs. He was also a heavy drinker because what else are you going to do? Possibly suffered from depression and was known to carry on affairs with women because why the hell not? Taylor suddenly disappeared on October 23rd, 1908, deserting his wife and daughter. After his disappearance, friends said he had previously suffered mental lapses, and his family thought initially he had wandered off during an episode of amnesia. Now, the wife obtained a state decree of divorce in 1912. 
Little is known of the years immediately following Taylor's disappearance, he traveled through Canada, Alaska, and the northwestern U.S., mining gold and working with various acting troops. Eventually, he switched from acting to producing. By the time he arrived in San Francisco, California, around 1912, he had changed his name to William Desmond Taylor. In San Francisco, some New York acquaintances met him and provided him with some money to reestablish himself in Los Angeles. Nice friends. Oh, yeah. I wish I had friends like that. Me too. They need to step up here. Right. Come no on, pressure. <laughs> Come on, people. Start, cho- start, start forcing it, you know? Or I'm going to sing again. <laughs> oh, God, please. <laughs> I'll get 50 bucks right now. <laughs> it reminds me Camp's of this. initial film act. Reminds was me of that skit on a, on a living color where they did a, it was um, Jim Carrey and Damon Wayans playing the, uh, the preachers of the first church of discount sin. And they were doing a, a um, telethon and the money wasn't coming in. And one of them said, you know, we kept your name from from all of you who called in on our adultery line, and then and then the total started skyrocketing. That's funny. His initial film acting acting was in 1913 for the New York Motion Picture Company, releasing under the brands of Bronco and KD. I don't think affiliated with the old. Yeah, you, know, you were thinking of Toy Story too. Yeah. His earliest known screen appearance was in The Counterfeiter. He then acted for Vitagraph Studios, including four appearances opposite Margaret Gibby Gibson and Balboa Amusement Producing Company. Uh, Balboa. Taylor met actress Neva Gerber, with whom he became engaged until 1919. And Gerber later recalled, he was a soul of honor, a man of personal culture, education, and refinement. I have never known a finer or better man. Taylor began directing films in 1914, beginning with The Judge's Wife for Balboa. After leaving Balboa, he directed two films at Favorite Players Film Company and then American Film Manufacturing Company, where he directed most of the 30-episode serial The Diamond from the Sky. In October of 1915, he joined Palace Pictures. A year later, Palace became a subsidiary of famous players Lasky. Except for a month working at Fox Film Corporation in 1917, all of Taylor's subsequent films were directed for famous players Lasky or its subsidiary companies. Around 1915, Taylor made contact with a sister-in-law, Ada Brennan Dean Tanner, wife of Taylor's younger brother, Dennis a former British Army lieutenant and manager of a New York antiques business. Dennis had also abandoned his wife and children, so it runs in the family. That's what I was thinking. In, yeah, in 1912. Ada and her daughters moved to Monrovia, California, where Ada could be treated at the Pottinger Sanatorium for tuberculosis. Oh, the consumption. Yeah. That's what happened a lot back then. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm not. I mean, we now know what tuberculosis is caused from, but and back then, man, people got the consumption and just just died. It was, it was like the cold, right? With dying, but <laughs> Ada's sister Lillian Pomeroy was Lillian. married to the Santorium's physician in charge, Doctor John L. Pomeroy. This would become public after Taylor's murder. Uh, um, spoiler yeah, alert. spoiler. <laughs> and the press descended upon the little town of Monrovia. Towards the end of World War One, in July of 1918, Taylor enlisted in the Canadian Expeditionary Force as a private. After training for four and a half months at Fort Edward, Nova Scotia, Taylor sailed from Halifax on a troop transport carrying 500 Canadian soldiers. I almost wanted to say Canadian geese, but Hey, it works. Yeah. They arrived at Hounslow Barracks, London on December 2nd, 1918. Taylor was ultimately assigned to the Royal Army Service Corps of the Expeditionary Forces Canteen Service, stationed at Dunkirk, 
Oh, wait, no, the, the, the Dunkirk I'm thinking of happened later. And promoted to the temporary grade of lieutenant on January 15th, 1919. At the end of April 1919, Taylor reached his final billet at Bourgeois, France. I know I butchered that. As Major Taylor, Company D, Royal Fusilers. Bourgeois. Bougie. Upon returning to Los Angeles on May 14th, 1919, Taylor was honored by the Motion Picture Directors Association with a formal banquet at the Los Angeles Athletic Club. After returning from military service, he went on to direct some of the most popular stars of the era, including Mary Pickford, Wallace Reed, Dustin Farnham, and his protege, Mary Miles Minter, who starred in the 1919 version of Anne of Green Gables. Siskel and Eber were there giving it two thumbs up. I'm sure those two were I'm sure those two were around back then. By this time, Taylor's ex-wife and daughter were aware that he was working in Hollywood. In 1918, while watching the film Captain Alvarez, they saw Taylor appear on the screen. Oh, that's got to be so fucking embarrassing. Ethel responded, that's your father. In response, Ethel Daisy wrote Taylor in care of the studio. In 1921, he visited his ex-wife and daughter in New York City and made Ethel Daisy his legal heir. Oh, well, that was nice of him. Yeah, at least he did that. Well, right. I was like, I don't know who you're, like, I'm not your father. I don't know who you are, child, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Child, I don't know who you are. Mm -hmm. I walked out on mom last week. Daughter. (laughs) That was just a... Oh, it's just a bad joke, but, you know, reminds me of that scene in uh, The Legend of Ricky Bobby, where uh, his his father meets his two, his two grandsons for the first time. And he goes, how do I know you're my grandchild? I'll stomp you in the mud, old man. That's my grandson. At 7.30 a.m. on the morning of Thursday, February 2nd, 1922, Taylor's body was found inside his bungalow at the Alvarado Court Apartments, 404B South Alvarado Street in Westlake, Los Angeles, which was a trendy and affluent neighborhood. A crowd gathered inside and someone identifying himself as a doctor stepped forward, made a cursory examination of the body, and declared Taylor died of a stomach hemorrhage. I bet he went like this. Yeah. Yeah. Stomach hemorrhage. Yeah. Doctor, are you going to look? Nah. I'm good. The doctor was never seen again. Dun, dun, dun. When doubts later rose, the body was rolled over by forensic investigators revealing that the 49-year-old film director had been shot at least once in the back with what appeared to have been a small caliber pistol, which was not found at the scene. Yeah, that made that uh, stomach hemorrhage there, you know. That threw that case out the window. <laughs> right. You know, it was probably some drunk from down the street. Oh, yeah, walked in. Hey, what's going this on here? Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm a doctor. doctor. Yeah, stomach hemorrhage. His funeral took place on February 7th, 1922 in St. Paul's Cathedral. After an Episcopal ceremony, he was interred in a mausoleum at Hollywood Cemetery. Cathedral mausoleum. You're welcome. Well, now it's named Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Well, yes. Yeah. Uh, but yes, yeah, the cathedral mausoleum, actually. So. Right. Well, you know. Yeah, that's up there. It's on Santa Monica Boulevard. Woohoo! The inscription on his crypt reads In memory of William C. Dean Tanner, beloved father Ethel Dean Tanner, died February 1st, 1922. In his pockets, investigator found a wallet holding $78 in cash, which today would be equivalent to $1,260. A silver cigarette case, ooh, that's worth some bucks. A Waltham pocket watch, a pen knife, and a locket bearing a photograph of actress Mabel Normand. 
A two-carat diamond ring was on his finger. God damn, that's money. He was balling. With the evidence of the money and valuables on the body, robbery seemingly was not the motive for the killing. You think? You're right. <laughs> you know, folks, between Mike and I, we've listened to a lot of true crime and read some crime stories. And if you're going to, you know, robbery is always the first thing they go, they go for in a, in a murder like this. You know, robbery gone bad. But if his money and his ring is still on him, it wasn't robbery. A large but undetermined sum of cash that Taylor had shown to his accountant the day before was missing. And apparently was not never counted for. I wonder how much money it was. Well, you figured 19, late teens, early 20s. Oh, this is before the stock market crash. So yeah, it could have been something. It could have been a wad big enough to choke a horse. After some investigation, the time of his death was set at 7.50 p.m. on the evening of February 1st, 1922. While being interviewed by the police five days later after the body was found, Minter said that the fo- that following the murder, her friend, director and actor Marshall Nealon, had told her that Taylor had made several highly delusional statements about some of his social acquaintances, including her, during the weeks before his death. She also said that Nealon thought Taylor had recently become insane. Insane in the membrane! Insane in the brain! In the midst of a media circus caused by the case, Los Angeles undersheriff Eugene Biscalis warned Chicago Tribune reporter Eddie Doherty the industry has been hurt, stars have been ruined, stockholders have lost millions of dollars. A lot of people are out of jobs and incensed enough to take a shot at you. According to Robert Drow, the studios seem to be fearful that if certain aspects of the case were exposed, it would exasperate their problems. King Vidor said of the case in 1968, Last year, I interviewed a Los Angeles police detective, William Michael Cahill Sr., now retired, who had been assigned to the case immediately after the murder. He told me, we were doing all right, and then before a week was out, we got the word to lay off. Uh-oh. Edward F. Sands had prior convictions for embezzlement, forgery, and serial desertion from the U.S. military. <laughs> serial desertion, that's a good one. Yeah, like, the, hey, you can come back. No, oh, I'm gone. No, you can come back. It's like, after uh, a while. Usually after the first time you desert, they put you in a court-martial. Yeah, that's what I thought. Born in Ohio, he had multiple aliases and spoke with an affected Cockney accent. Sands had worked as Taylor's valet and cook until seven months before the murder. While Taylor was in Europe the summer before in 1921, Sands had forged his name on checks and wrecked his car. Well, that's not going to look good on a resume. Oh, yeah. Later, Sands burgled Taylor's bungalow, leaving footprints on the film director's bed. Following the murder, Sands was never seen or heard from again. Bungled his bungalow. That just sounds nasty. I know, right? Even though it was just like, you know, normal, but yeah. Just, right. <laughs> just, you know. Yeah, I don't know. It just reminded me of something Alex said earlier that had me laughing in the car. Henry Peavy, who replaced Sands as valet, was the person who found Taylor's body. Newspapers noted that Peavy wore flashy golf costumes, but did not own any golf clubs. Just a look. Maybe he was comfortable in them. Yeah. Three days before Taylor's murder, Peavy had been arrested for social vagrancy and charged with being lewd and dissolute. I wonder what wonder what lewd and dissolute was. I know, right? I mean, lewd covers a lot of ground. Um, According to Robert Drow. Even though the police decided after severe questioning that PV was not the murderer, the Hollywood correspondent of the New York Daily News, Florbel Muir, came to a private conclusion that PV was the murderer in that era of ingenious women reporters. I love this story. I, like, I've always loved this part of the story. Muir thought she could in- engineer a scoop by tricking PV into a confession. She knew from the movies that blacks were deathly afraid of ghosts. 
Oh, yeah. With the help of two Confederates, Frank Carson and Al Winshank, she offered Peavy $10 if he would identify Taylor's grave in the Hollywood Park Cemetery, which she had already visited. Winshank had gone on ahead with a white sheet, and Muir and Carson drove Peavy to the site. Winshank, who came from a tough section of Chicago, spoke <laughs> with the accents of a hoodlum. Yeah. When he loomed up in the sheet and cried out, I am the ghost of William Desmond Taylor. You murdered me. Confess, Peavy. Henry laughed out loud, then cursed them roundly. Unfortunately for Muir, she was unaware that Taylor had a distinctive British accent. Well, that would have helped. Yeah. I know, right? Weinshank, as Muir revealed in her memoirs, not only spoke like a hoodlum, but also was one of the alleged Chicago mobsters who was later gunned down in the infamous St. Valentine's Day Massacre. No. Another connection for... No? No. Um, I, I know... I don't remember the names and also. But. Um, I I know the names and that that one's not familiar. He he wasn't he wasn't there. I mean, yeah. Well, she sounds like pretty stupid anyway. So. Right, but if you're gonna try to scare somebody from Chicago, <laughs> good luck. Uh huh. I mean, it takes a lot to scare somebody from Chicago. Well, he wasn't. Peavy wasn't like from Chicago. It was the guy that she hired. Well, and that's the thing. A guy from Chicago, you got to pay. Well, ten bucks was a lot back then, but uh-huh. you know, either way, Chicago people don't scare. I mean, they every once in a while we hear a report about the Mothman sighting in Chicago, and I'm like, "Are you sure it's just not a bum from Lower Wacker Drive?" Come on, people. Chicago doesn't have a Mothman. We have a billy goat that likes to curse the cubs. I need to look into that. I do. I do. Yeah, because of course that's also like better for her story. You know, well, right? Yeah. Was... But she should have got her. Um, she should have got her facts straight before she pulled this off. Because having a guy with a Chicago accent try to pass himself off as a British guy doesn't work. Uh, but, well, actually, I'm looking at Britannica online and has him listed. Wine shank? As a victim. A wine shank, yeah. Um, let me. Yeah, grab... well, like, I'll finish up for you. Look, yeah. Let me grab one of my Capone books. Yeah. So. Okay. In 1931, Peavy died in a San Francisco asylum where he had been hospitalized for syphilis. There comes up again related dementia. Mabel Norman was a popular comedic actress and frequent co-star with Charlie Chaplin and Roscoe Arbuckle. Another um, person of one of our Hollywood Babylon stories. According to author Robert Rowe, Taylor was deeply in love with Norman, and she had originally approached him for help to cure her cocaine dependency. Based upon Norman's subsequent statements to police investigators, her repeated relapses were devastating for Taylor. According to Giroux, Taylor met with federal prosecutors shortly before his death and offered to testify against Norman's cocaine suppliers. Giroux expressed a belief that these suppliers learned of the meeting and hired a contract killer to assassinate the director. According to Giroux, Norman suspected the reasons for her lover's murder, but did not know the identity of the trigger man. On the night of the murder, Norman claimed to have left Taylor's bungalow at 7.45 p.m. in a happy mood, carrying a bouquet lantern. She and Taylor blew kisses to each other as her limousine drove her away. Norman was the last person known to have seen Taylor alive, and the Los Angeles Police Department subjected her to a grueling interrogation, but they ruled her out as a suspect. Most subsequent writers have done the same. However, Norman's career had already slowed, and her reputation was tarnished by revelations of her addiction, which was seen as a moral failing. 
According to George Hopkins, who sat next to her at Taylor's funeral, Norman wept inconsolably throughout the ceremony. Ultimately, Norman continued to make films throughout the 1920s. She died of tuberculosis eight years later on the 23rd of February, 1930. Man, that thing was going around like the flu. According to her friend and confidant, Julia Brew, Norman asked her to leave a few days before she died. Julia, do you think they'll ever find out who killed Bill Taylor? Faith Cole McLean, the wife of Douglas McLean, and neighbor of Taylor's, is widely believed to have seen Taylor's killer. The couple started by a loud noise at 8 p.m. McLean opened her front door and saw someone emerging from the front door of Taylor's home, who she said was dressed like my idea of a motion picture burglar. So it was probably black stocking cap, domino mask, black and white striped shirt, uh, black, <laughs> black gloves, black jeans. She recalled this person paused for a moment before turning and walking back through the door as if having forgotten something, then reemerged seconds later and flashed a smile at her before running off and disappearing between the buildings. McLean thought that the loud noise she had heard was a car backfire, not a gunshot. She also told police interviewers this person looked funny, like movie actors in white-faced makeup. Ah. And speculated it may have been a woman disguised as a man due to the person's height and build. Mary Miles Minter was a former child star and teen screen idol whose career had been guided by Taylor. Minter, who had grown up without a father, was only three years older than the daughter Taylor had abandoned in New York. Love letters from Minter were found in Taylor's bungalow. Based upon these, the reporters alleged that a sexual relationship between the 49-year-old Taylor and 19-year-old Minter had started when she was 17. Giroux and Vidor, however, disputed this allegation. Citing Minter's own statements, both believed that her love for Taylor was unrequited or unrequited. Taylor had often... Unrequited, yeah, the first. Okay. Taylor often declined to see Minter and had described himself as too old for her. However, facsimiles of Minter's passionate letters to Taylor were printed in newspapers forever shattering her screen image as a modest and wholesome young girl. She was vilified in the press. Minter made four more films for Paramount Pictures, and when the studio failed to renew her contract, she received offers from many other producers. Never comfortable as an actress, Minter declined them all. In 1957, she married Brandon O. Hildebrandt, a Danish-American businessman. She died in Santa Monica, California on August 4th, 1984. Charlotte Shelby was Minter's mother. Like many stage mothers before and since, she has been described as manipulative and consumed by wanting greed over her daughter's career. Minter and her mother were bitterly divided by financial disputes and lawsuits for a time, but they later reconciled. Shelby's initial statements to police about the murder are still characterized as evasive and obviously filled with lies about both her daughter's relationship with Taylor and other matters. Perhaps the most compelling bit of circumstantial evidence was that Shelby allegedly owned a rare 38 caliber pistol and some unusual bullets, which were very similar to the kind which had killed Taylor. After this information became public, she reportedly threw the pistol into a Louisiana bayou, Shelby yep. knew that Los Angeles, what? Weisenshank was there. Uh, yeah, it's like, was looking to. Shelby knew the Los Angeles district attorney socially and spent years outside the United States in an effort to avoid both official inquiries by his successor and press coverage related to the murder. In 1938, her other daughter, actress Margaret Shelby, who was by then suffering from both clinical depression and alcoholism, openly accused her mother of the murder. Shelby was widely suspected of the crime and was a favorite suspect of many writers. For example, Adela Rogers St. John's speculated that Shelby was torn by feelings of maternal protection for her daughter and her own attraction to Taylor. 
Although Shelby feared being tried for the murder, at least two Los Angeles County district attorneys publicly declined to prosecute her. Almost 20 years after the murder, Los Angeles District Attorney Byron Fitz concluded evidence was insufficient for an indictment of Shelby and recommended that the remaining evidence and case files be retained on a permanent basis. All these materials subsequently disappeared. Again, shocker. Right. Shelby died in 1957. Fitz, in ill health, died by suicide in 1973. Margaret Gibson was a film actress who had worked with Taylor when he first came to Hollywood. In 1917, she was indicted, tried, and acquitted on charges equivalent to prostitution, included with allegations of opium dealing. Oh, nice. Yeah. After which she changed her professional name to Patricia Palmer. In 1923, Gibson was arrested and jailed on extortion charges, which were later dropped. She was 27 years old and in Los Angeles at the time of Taylor's murder. No record of her name was ever mentioned in connection with the investigation. Soon after the murder, Gibson got work in a number of films produced by famous players Lasky, Taylor's studio at the time of his death. Shortly before she died in 1964, Gibson reportedly confessed to murdering Taylor. Through a combination of poor crime scene management and apparent corruption, much physical evidence was immediately lost and the rest vanished over the years, although copies of a few documents from the police files were made public in 2007. Various theories were put forward after the murder and in the years since, and many books were published claiming to have identified the murderer but no conclusive evidence has ever been uncovered in linking the crime to any particular individual. Because so many of the celebrities mentioned in the Taylor case were familiar to the public through their movie performances, this was the first American murder in which so many people felt such a personal interest. Public interest in the case resulted in stories about the Taylor murder selling more newspapers in the United States than ever before. Well, that's probably true. Anti-Hollywood sentiment peaked in the weeks following the Taylor murder, with editorials comparing Hollywood to all the licentiousness that marked the Roman times of Caligula. I'm having problems with my thumb turning pages, so just bear with me. Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. Our American Sodom and Gomorrah and others sounding the call to destroy Hollywood. Other editorials characterized Taylor as a crafty, cultured villain who got what was coming to him, and urging every weapon available should be used by all the forces of law to defeat the conspiracy to cover up the Taylor case. A spate of newspaper-driven Hollywood scandals during the early 20s, including the Taylor's murder, once again the Fatty Arbuckle trial, last week's the death of Olive Thomas, the mysterious death of Thomas H. Ince, hope I said that right, and the drug or alcohol... Favor of mine. And the drug or alcohol related deaths of Wallace Reed, Barbara Lamar, and Gene Eagles, all of which prompted Hollywood studios to begin writing contracts with morality clauses or moral turpitude clauses, allowing the dismissal of contractees who breached them, which probably gave us more of our Hollywood Babylon series to cover. It was actually Barbara Lamar is also buried at the um the cathedral mausoleum. Okay. And Thomas Ince, I'm not sure when he was like removed, but he was buried at Hollywood Forever or Hollywood Memorial Park back then. Okay. That because would have loved to see you know his grave too. But yeah, I visited Maple Norman's grave because of her connection to the case. 16 years ago. So basically, this is still an open investigation, despite evidence. Yeah, I mean, it's 101 years now. Right, but I mean, it's still an open investigation, despite the fact that evidence has been removed. Yeah, and I'm like sure how many people are really actually working on it, too. Right, it's probably probably such a cold case that, you know, um, you could probably find mammoths buried in it. Uh-huh. 
but that yeah. is William Desmond Taylor. Mm-hmm. Well, I've, I've visited his grave. I mean, several times, but last year I made, <coughs> I guess, what could say, concerted effort. Okay. To go over there again because of it being a hundred years and yeah, you know, like a couple months. Right. It's like uh, charting a boat and going out to where the Titanic sunk on, sunk on the anniversary. Yeah. Although that museum in Branson was pretty cool. Never been to Branson. Branson is redneck Vegas. Well, I knew that part, but it's it's not. Yeah, Pigeon Forge. That's where. Branson's not a bad place. I mean, it's really. I I went there with Amanda a few years ago. it was like the first time I'd been there since I was a kid. So we went to the big attraction there, Silver Dollar City. Um, and it was, it, it had changed a lot since I was a kid. I can imagine. Well, there, it's I mean, really been built up too, though, really, with all the entertainment stuff. Right. And um, I remember. Like the one ride that I loved, the flooded mine was just like a, a ride through haunted house boat wise. Well, they changed it now. They put a uh, laser tag guns in there so you can shoot the targets as you're going through. Oh, that's cool. It was. It was. It was really neat. Yeah, because this week went to Kennedy Center, and I was there when I was seven, and I remember it being a lot more interesting than it was I, this time. And James was like, "This is the worst." I'm like. All, of all the trips that I've taken to DC, I've never been to the Kennedy Center. It's, yeah, it's like I told you before; it's just it's not worth it. I mean, I've been Museum of American History, Natural History, Air and Space, American Indian, yeah, Af- African American. That's a good one. Yeah, even the Cathedral Mausoleum was kind of disappointing, except for the whole you know Wilson thing. Ford's Theater. I've been. I, uh, that's oh, yeah. one of my. That's one of my stops whenever I go to DC. Is Ford's Theater. Yeah, so I saw your text in James. Like, yeah, that's my favorite one. It's like, but yeah, the air and space is about half um, done now. Okay. So I said about like another like year, year and a half. So should all be well, done. I know. Um, I'm planning a trip in July out that way with the kids. Yeah. I mean, it's open now. Just like I said, the time tech is, but it was funny because they have, um, well, the it doesn't look anything. It's all like new carpet now, which is not surprising, but, um, they have like quotes from different people in the floor. And it, I found like, I was just saying, I like new Sally ride. So I had to take a picture and she was like, you've seen her grave. I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> I was like, basically, I'm like, this is like, see, you know, like Milton Hershey quote for you. So. Is this, it was one of the quotes, what does this button do? Yeah, she like actually lived. Oh, I thought they would put like Kristen McAuliffe under it. What does this button yeah. do? <laughs> or the, yeah, the, the Arlington with the Columbia the second time. I've seen them. Like, there's three of them. The astronauts. Oh, there. yeah, they were. Some of the astronauts were like Navy pilots or something. Yeah, like or, um, so that was finally got to see him. Like I said, in Brian Sicknick, which is actually kind of was another quote. Ironic. Uh, I saw him yesterday. <laughs> was another quote. Um, any crash you can walk away from is a good one. That should have been on there, but you're right. <laughs> Any crash you can walk away from. Or, yeah, uh, the the first time someone... they had stuff from Charles Lindbergh. So basically, I had I was no like, one. Please find my son. Oh, yeah, I had to explain to him that um, that Charles Lindbergh was nice the way now to put him. I said he was um Jimmy Stewart's Milton Hershey. So from the kind of right understand is it the is it the uh, spirit of st louis on display there 
It was now I can't because they have like so many like other ones too now. Like oh, so they rotated. Well, the, the Smithsonian always rotates. Yeah, but if that though they had it seems like they had more like of the newer planes. The um the right plane. Yeah, it's still there and it's pretty much exactly the way it was when yeah we were there. Right. Um, but yeah, it was finally like that's when my legs are aching too from all the walking yesterday. But who else did I see? The last um, casualty of the Vietnam War. Oh, nice. Yeah. I wanted to see the last World War I um, veteran, but was running out of time and couldn't, like, quite locate him. Did see Colin Powell, which was interesting. He just has another, just the regular standard stone. Right, I like I said, I know. Um, in the uh, July, I put in for the twentieth through the thirty first for me at work. I know. Uh, you know, Alex is going. Susie's going. His girlfriend Dana might join us on this trip. So it'll be a first time at DC, and I I wanted to be kind of you know special. Yeah. Uh-huh. Welcome to Fantasy. I oh wait, wrong one. Yeah, well, this was like the first time I think, like, God, like, I want to say, like, since maybe I have to ask my mom though, but it might be the first time since the 80s actually, like, we stayed overnight in the DC area. Or at least definitely since the 90s, but does that like so much to do for it's when we head up Mount Vernon? I would, um, I think I'm going to see that next week when I'm in uh, Virginia. Yeah. Yeah, that was still interesting. Fortunately, that wasn't like disappointing. Like some of the other stuff when I was younger. No, I've never been to Mount Vernon. I want to go. Um, I'm also, like I said at the top of the show, I'm I'm going out there for uh, some job hunting too, or scouting, I should say. Yeah. But we're gonna wrap this one up, Monica's. Fun week in DC and I Maryland see, yeah. and Virginia. Like I can like connect so many things. Yeah, that's why I said this, this is like this, this, you can connect so much to. It's like playing six well, degrees of Kevin Bacon. I know you have like could always have like a separate podcast. Like I mean, nobody would actually listen to it except for me anyway. But but yeah, the um Mabel Norman, she's um oh good. With the tamer, let's see. This is never yeah. drink seltzer and like go on a road trip. Well, I was thinking, um, oh, oh La Bianca. Oh my god, I can't really. I'm embarrassed. I'm like actually embarrassed because she's at the same cemetery as Lino La Bianca. Okay, well, see, I was thinking, um, and, and I'll talk more about this when we when we shut down here. Um, mm-hmm. I actually got a thing on uh, in in my mailbox that we can um, we can actually set up a channel on iTunes. Yeah, so can yeah, so like if you and I did another show about uh-huh. you know cemeteries or whatever, we could put it into a channel, which was with, actually the original plan anyway. Right, and I mean we could still. <laughs> Still do one, kind of, yeah, just a little like looser than what I had planned, you know. Like, hey, this, right, because I was they've got these people are buried here, and well, actually, like with Lasky, he is also um at the Hollywood Forever, but he's in Abbey of the Psalms, which technically he's only he's yards away from where my niche is there, and Hollywood Forever, like actually Paramount Studios, yeah was built out of Hollywood Memorial Park. Okay. But um no, so I was I mean, you know, I'm actually thinking about doing a, a you guys are hearing us right now, so, you know, probably everyone's turned off by now. I'm working on my Civil War show on Reconstructed, and I am toying with the idea of doing a baseball history podcast. Yeah, I'd be like, I'm out. <laughs> like, well, and the thing is, is I like to dollop, and uh-huh. I, I love their baseball uh-huh. stories. 
either. So I love their baseball stories because there's a lot of crazy people in baseball. And I want to tell there's I want to tell more of their stories. Yeah, well, it's kind of like. But I would love I would love to do like a a, a, yeah. a cemetery ghost story type one with you. Well, yeah, that'd be because we were on the we were on this like really good um, nighttime tour that James again was like I don't want to go and then we went on and he enjoyed it. And of course, he had to tell everybody on the bus that he had peed <laughs> in the Lincoln Memorial. Then I had to clarify it was actually it was in the bathroom area. I, see, I, I didn't know there was a bathroom at the Lincoln Memorial. Yeah, because remember when we were there too? Well, right. I had to like just have him in the stroller and like. Right, you guys but, are just you're just yeah. hearing us right now, but we're we're gonna wrap this one up. Yeah, this is like this is why I wanted to do this after though. So. Feel like he can shut it off, but right. Uh, but the, went to past the Blair house okay. and we talked about, but I was also like, it didn't include the information about the assassination attempt on Truman that took place there when he was president. I was not like, aware of that. That's the kind of stories that I want to hear about. Okay. And I tried to, I wanted to go see the police officer that was killed during that attempt, but they were like, they were having like so much, um, right. Like construction and everything going on that couldn't like really get there and my legs were basically ready to give out so i'm like okay well you're on the next trip for this one so all right but uh you, thanks for listening want to i want to hear what happens so thank um, you <laughs> you know we're we are uh you know where to find us spotify um i'm gonna put this out there if anyone can make a a good image three thousand pixels by three thousand pixels for the show What's I said, I also ask, you know, first I talk to you. Right. Um, see if, you know. But. Right. Because that's the only thing that's holding us up on iTunes is the, the cover art. Can we just do like maybe like um, just solid color? Because I remember years ago, I was at the Philadelphia Art Museum and somebody, it was literally probably like a three by three painting and it all it was was red. I'm, I'm like, gonna try. I'm gonna. It's not art if I can do it. So I'm like, I'm gonna try. <laughs> um, I'm gonna take a computer with me on vacation so I can get some work done. I might take both, of them, but <laughs> but uh, thank you for joining us for Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs. I'm Scotty J. Say good night, Monica. Good night, Monica.